morning. Sunday morning through Revelation, coming now to chapter 15. And then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. You who, uh, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are worthy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested." And after these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with the smoke of the glory of God and, and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Let's pray together. Father, again, thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege of being able to build our lives on the rock that it is to be able to obey it and for us to know that we're founding our lives and our eternities on something that can never be moved and can never be shaken. We live in a world that is moving. We live in a world that is shaking. It always has been. And we thank you that you have given us an immovable foundation in you and in your word. We pray, Lord, that you would take this passage of your word and you would build it into that foundation in our understanding of you, Lord, or obedience to you in our own personal relationship with you this morning. We pray for this work of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. In chapters 15 and 16 of the Revelation, it returns to the chronology of events that uh, for the most part, Mark chapters 6 through 19, and that is the chronology of the series of the seal and the trumpet and the bold judgments being poured out sequentially. These judgments are required of God to be poured out upon the world at that time in order for, and the words of, of this revelation, the kingdoms of this world to become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And so the means by which God is going to bring an end not only to Satan's rebellion 
and uh, wickedness and evil, but also the expression of evil and wickedness and sin uh, upon uh, the earth. And so, uh, he, and, and in order, as Peter uh, teaches, that all of this might give way to a new heaven and a new earth ultimately, wherein righteousness dwells. It's a very happy ending, uh, but it'll uh, take a little work to get there. In chapters 15 and 16, we come now to the final of these three series of seven judgments, the bold judgments, and chapter 15 constitutes a lead-in, a very needed introduction to those bold judgments, and then chapter 16 records the pouring out of those bold judgments uh, themselves, which leads up to Jesus' second coming. You notice in verse 1, the Apostle John, he witnessed here the seven angels having the seven last plagues or or bowls. And so again, here John's vision uh, returns once again to the heavenly scene, uh, what it is that's occurring there. Uh, he witnessed uh, seven angels having or bearing the seven bowls containing uh, what is the, uh, the finality of God's uh, wrath. He declared all of this, this sight as he sees this. He declares it to be great. He declares it to be marvelous. And then John declared that the pouring out of these judgments uh, with it, the wrath of God will be complete. In other words, the purposes behind all of the seal and the trumpet and the bold judgments will then be accomplished. The reaction of uh, these bold, uh, the, the uh, bold judgments being dispersed and the preparation for that uh, occurring is given to us in uh, the uh, persons of what we have come to know in the Revelation as the tribulation saints, those who become Christians during the tribulation period, after um, the rapture of the church, and then are for the most part, not entirely, but for the most part, martyred for their faith during uh, the reign of the Antichrist. And so the reaction of these martyred uh, tribulation saints in heaven to this final judgment that is going to culminate all of God's judgment here uh, is, is described in verses 2 through 4. And the tribulation saints are described in verse 2 as standing on something like uh, a sea of glass mingled with fire. So this is probably the same sea of glass that was mentioned in Revelation chapter 4, but now with the additional element here of being mingled with fire. So speaking of God's judgment, speaking of the purification uh, of the world and His creation, that this judgment is going to uh, produce. And again, we see John trying very hard, even inspired by the Holy Spirit, to describe these things in human language. And so we, the continual, it is like, it is like. In other words, this is not like anything in the world that I can describe to you. But the closest thing I can, uh, that you would know in the world that you could put in your mind to describe this would be a sea of glass uh, mingled with fire. And so they're described here, these tribulation saints, as victors over the beast, over the Antichrist. And so uh, the Antichrist is completely unsuccessful in getting them to worship him. They are victors over his mark, his image, and the number of his name. They had refused all of that. 
the power of the Holy Spirit, refuse to take part in uh, any uh, uh, element uh, that involved the worship uh, of the Antichrist, uh, even if it meant their death. And so uh, they're spoken of as victorious in that regard. Someone might wonder, how does a martyr's death represent a victory? It represents a victory when death ushers you into heaven. Uh, As Jesus taught, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to to destroy both soul and body in hell. We see also that uh, they are going to have the harps of God and uh, and so uh, presumably to accompany uh, themselves in the song that uh, they're about to sing. The song that they sing to God, these tribulation saints do, they sing to God, they sing it about God as well, is given to us in verses 3 and 4. And it's described as the song of Moses, and then also as the song of the Lamb, speaking of uh, Jesus. So it appears that the song of Moses is the song that we have in Exodus chapter 15, that Moses sang uh, following the de- Israel's uh, deliverance from their bondage in Egypt, from their captivity there, and then the destruction of Pharaoh's army uh, who came out to try and recapture them as they were drowned uh, in, in the Red uh, Sea as they sought to take them back into Egypt. And so uh, the song of Moses in the Old Testament, very much a song of the celebration of God's deliverance, the celebration of His uh, redemption. And so the song of Moses, it's a wonderful song. Uh, in, in Exodus chapter 15, and, uh, but it is only a very faint shadow of, of the greater redemption, the greater deliverance that is ours uh, in Jesus Christ, and, uh, and the greater deliverance and redemption that has moved uh, these tribulation saints uh, uh, not out of the bondage of Egypt, but out of the bondage of sin, uh, out of the bondage of the flesh, and then ultimately to, to deliver them into uh, the glory of heaven. The song you notice in verse 3 Uh, It celebrates God's works or His deeds. And so uh, all of the different kind of the dog and pony show, comparatively speaking, that the Antichrist puts on for everyone to deceive them during the tribulation period, it just absolutely pales in comparison uh, to the works and the deeds uh, of God. The song celebrates in verse 3 the power and the authority of God, that the the Lord is, He is Lord, He is God, and He is Almighty. And we are thankful for that. And then it celebrates His ways, and that His ways are always just and true. That is, they're always righteous, and they're always perfectly conformed uh, to truth. There's no lie, there's no deception, there's no darkness at all in, in God's ways. The song in verse 4 is a celebration of God's holiness, even as we've sung this morning. And then in verse 4, a celebration of God's judgments, because these judgments are going to bring an end to uh, the rebellion against God by both Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, 
uh, and people, the, the rebellion against uh, 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 bringing an end to that wickedness and that rebellion on the earth. And so it celebrates God's ultimate victory that one day, uh, as we're told there, He is going to be worshipped by all of the nations of the world and that His kingdom is going to come and uh, His will is going to be done on earth as it's presently uh, being done in heaven. And so it will uh, in the kingdom age. The reaction of heaven uh, to the judgment of God as it's expressed in this uh, song is very, very instructive. And it's very, very important that we uh, receive that instruction uh, as Christians. It is important to note that heaven is thrilled that God is going to bring a complete judgment uh, to sin and wickedness and rebellion against Him on the earth and bring all of it to uh, an end. You notice that these bold judgments come uh, from God, as we're told in verses 5 through 8. The Apostle John, he saw the temple uh, of the tabernacle of the testimony open in heaven, and the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony uh, references the Old Testament tabernacle uh, that Moses uh, built at the time of his ministry. That tabernacle was modeled after uh, heaven itself. And so he sees now this tabernacle opened, which is kind of the residence of God, symbolically speaking, in the Old Testament. And then uh, it's called the tabernacle of the testimony because the testimony speaks of the Ten Commandments that were in the Ark of the Covenant that were then in the Holy uh, of Holies. And so uh, they were kept uh, in that Ark. And John is communicating here that by way of these bold judgments, God is going to apply Uh, the standard of the Word of God to the wickedness of the world, and the result is going to be judgment in the form uh, of these bowls uh, of wrath. You notice in verse 6 that out of the temple came seven angels having uh, the seven plagues. And so these plagues uh, are going to issue forth from the very presence of God. That is, they issue forth from uh, God Himself, and their robes are pure, uh, bright linen, and the golden sashes around their chests. And so this uh, indicates kind of a priestly garb that they are wearing as they uh, meet out these bold judgments. In other words, they're engaged in a priestly activity, engaged in a holy activity, uh, something is sacred here that they are doing. In verse 7, one of the four living creatures, and the four living creatures are these angelic beings that are right in the very, very presence of, of God uh, in heaven, as we've seen earlier in the Revelation. He, uh, one of these living creatures then gives the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the result in verse 8 is that the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues 
of the seven angels were uh, completed. And so the Shekinah glory that comes upon the entire scene at that time, it certainly uh, brings to our remembrance the dedication of the tabernacle at the time of Moses, where God then uh, blessed that dedication of it to him with his presence in the same kind of form, with his, his Shekinah glory. Also when uh, Solomon dedicated the temple uh, that was built to the Lord, uh, there was the same uh, expression of, of the glory of God's presence. And so again, these bowls of wrath were being very carefully told. Uh, they proceed from the glory, they proceed from the holiness uh, of God, and when we're told here that no one is able to enter the temple at this point, it communicates that the judgment is now irreversible. There is no priest, there is no mediator, there is no one that can stop at this point or delay uh, God's judgment in, in the tribulation period. Some uh, hold that the reason that the entire a uh, heavenly scene is then shrouded with smoke uh, uh, from God's glory uh, is in order to kind of hide God, so to speak, uh, because he's weeping uh, as this final judgment goes forward. Well, I, I, don't, uh, I wouldn't bet my house on it, um, but I don't dismiss it out of hand either. It's an interesting thought. We know that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Again, Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23, God declares, Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and that he should not turn from his ways and live? Later in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 33, verse 11, uh, God declares to Ezekiel, Say to them, As I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house uh, of Israel? And then even more compellingly in this regard, Hosea chapter uh, 11, verse 8, uh, here in the New King James. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I make you like uh, Zeboim? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. Well, that's very um, much like the King James or the New King James. It's quite uh, conservative in, in how it uh, translates, but the New Living Translation catches it perfectly. Allow me to read that verse to you from there. Oh, how shall I give you up, Israel? And how can I let you go? Shall I, how can I destroy you like Adma or destroy, demolish you like uh, Zeboim? My heart is torn within me and my compassion overflows. And there is a very real sense in which all of this is truly heartbreaking for him. He will do it because he must do it to be consistent with his nature. But he doesn't enjoy it. It isn't his first choice. And it's not what he ever intended for man. 
He made us to love, be loved by Him, to have fellowship with Him, and it is sin's man, man's sin and rebellion against Him that is, makes Him the judge and makes Him the judge that He never intended to uh, be. Now, the, I think it's important, and I want to spend just my remaining minutes here this morning talking about uh, this. And uh, allow me just to close by uh, speaking uh, about the wrath of God. And speaking about the wrath of God, both in terms of the seal and the trumpet and the bowl judgments uh, that are spoken about here in chapter 15, but also in terms of, of God's wrath in the form of His eternal punishment of the wicked in Gehenna as we uh, briefly mentioned uh, last week in chapter 14, uh, knowing that um, we'd probably come back around to it. As we saw last week in chapter 14, during the tribulation, an angel is going to warn the entire world against taking uh, the mark of the beast. And, uh, and, and it will, will communicate uh, that they should not take it, communicates not only the, that they should not take it, but warns them of the consequences of taking that mark uh, of, of the beast, that, that there will be eternal consequences uh, as a result of, of doing so. And to take the mark of the beast would be to communicate that I have given my heart, my soul, uh, my strength and loyalty to the Antichrist and uh, whatever is the polar opposite of that, uh, that's what I give to God. And, and so that's the statement that is being made by people when they take the mark of the beast during uh, the tribulation period. The consequences, we're told, is an eternal separation from God uh, in Gehenna. And uh, this is the word that is, is used here in our passage, as we'll see in a moment. Gehenna speaks of an eternal lake of fire in terms of judgment. Uh, there is also the term that is used uh, in the Bible. Uh, it, the, wor the, the word hell is sometimes, it's translated hell. Sometimes it means Gehenna, eternal lake of fire. Uh, sometimes it means Hades. Hades is a waiting place. Uh, where there are uh, people after their death then uh, that have rejected Christ wait there until ultimately they stand before the judgment, white throne uh, judgment seat of Christ and then end up making their ultimate uh, end in uh, Gehenna. So there is that difference between, uh, between the two of them. Gehenna, as we saw last week in chapter 14, uh, is a place of eternal uh, torment. It is a lake of fire. There is no rest. There is no relief there. And uh, in choosing uh, Satan and choosing his path, they also choose his eternal destination. As Jesus taught, as we mentioned uh, last week when uh, he declared, and then he, that is the Lord, will say to those on his left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It is important to realize concerning God's judgment that as we've already seen, he does not rejoice in the judgment of the wicked. 
not in the form of the seal or the trumpet or the bowl judgments, and nor does he rejoice in the judgment of the wicked and the lost uh, in terms of uh, Gehenna, in terms of eternal uh, punishment uh, of those who refuse his offer uh, of salvation. And no serious Christian, no mature Christian uh, rejoices in it uh, either. It's not a pleasant subject, and it isn't uh, intended to be. And that's important for us uh, to understand. Sometimes people, you may feel it in your own chest right now. People say, I'm not comfortable uh, with the subject of hell. I'm not comfortable with the subject uh, of an eternal judgment. You're not supposed to be. You're not supposed to be. That's the idea. In our culture, we want to change everything that we are uncomfortable with. So we never learn the lessons that uncomfortable things are intended to teach us. And most importantly, what they're intended to teach us by God and what it's intended to produce within us. And so we rejoice at the end of wickedness and evil, but we will be grieved by those who choose to enter into a Christless eternity. But it doesn't change the reality of God's judgment. Why would God warn and warn and warn and warn and warn all the way through the Bible, and then all the way through the tribulation period about his judgment, about Gehenna, if it weren't a reality. It would, it would make God a folly. I mean, it would make him insincere. It would make him a deceiver uh, uh, and just a, a mere talker. And uh, it would make God's warnings completely meaningless. It would make his repeated warnings throughout uh, the revelation meaningless in this regard. And why would God provide a uniquely qualified Savior in the person of his very Son and then call on us to repent of our sins and to trust in him for our salvation if that person, if what a person does with Jesus has no ultimate bearing upon their eternity at all. I think it can be surprising to most people to learn that Jesus spoke more about hell in his public ministry than he did about heaven, as the uh, Gospels record. In fact, 11 out of the 12 times the word Gehenna is used in the New Testament, it is used by Jesus. 11 out of the 12 times. I'll give you an example of some of those places. Matthew chapter uh, 10, verse 28, once again. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And the word is Gehenna. Matthew chapter 23, verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, 
And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell, Gehenna, as yourself. Matthew chapter 23, verse 33. Serpents, brood of vipers, as he spoke to the Jewish religious leaders. How can you escape the condemnation of hell or Gehenna? Matthew chapter 18, verse 9. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes uh, to be cast into hell, Gehenna fire. Now Jesus is not, it's very important to mention this, Jesus is not calling on anyone to literally uh, pluck their eye out of their uh, eye socket. It's not to be taken literally, but he's communicating that no sin, no practice, uh, no anything is worthy of missing out on, he- uh, on heaven and ending up in Gehenna uh, over. Jesus referred to it as a place where uh, th- their, worm die, uh, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I think that while many people and uh, even many uh, Christians struggle with the reality of God's judgment and His eternal judgment uh, in particular, um, while I, I certainly don't rejoice in it uh, any, any more than, than God does, I very readily accept it as a part of the teaching of the Bible. And, and, I, and I accept it as a necessary mark of God's character. And God's wrath against sin and His judgment of it is an expression of His love and of His uh, righteousness. Judgment is simply righteousness coming into contact with sin. And if God was indifferent to sin and wickedness, if He did nothing about it, uh, ultimately, then you could not declare Him to be truly righteous and you couldn't declare Him to be uh, truly loving. You look at many of the cities then. The United States of America today, which let criminals uh, run wild in the streets. They refuse to enforce uh, the, the laws that are broken. They refuse to mete out any kind of meaningful consequences for crime. And those cities are neither righteous, uh, nor are they loving. Not toward the law-abiding citizen, and not toward the criminal uh, themselves. If something isn't righteous, then it cannot be truly loving. And that's the way that it works. And here we live in a world, specifically in a nation, that is determined to define love as being expressed supremely in ignoring or embracing unrighteousness. And then we complain so often that God doesn't join in on the insanity. But He won't, and He can't. He is the, the lone bastion of sanity in this world while we play uh, the games that we play. Sin has already ruined the earth, and God is not going to allow it to ruin heaven. And one day, uh, sin is going to be ultimately and completely cons- consigned Uh, to Gehenna. Additionally, I am very, very hesitant, uh, and that's putting it mildly. 
I am very, very hesitant to judge the righteousness of God's judgments uh, or the necessity of God's judgment, uh, period. But again, I certainly am hesitant to do that uh, from the vantage point of a mere mortal who is regularly wrong about a lot of things all of the time, but to, to judge his, his um, righteousness and his judgment from the vantage point of this, again, spiritual and moral insane asylum uh, called earth. As if we have figured anything out in this world at all. And, we can, and I'm talking even morally and spiritually. Okay, we made an iPhone. While the world collapses around us morally and spiritually. Uh, and so the, these things that we consider great achievements while uh, things are burning uh, around us, uh, again, God isn't afflicted with that, that kind of a, a failure to properly represent what we're in the, the middle of. We've made a mess of everything that we touch. And, and, and uh, people, that, uh, people ought to read more. And people ought to r- read history more. It's the same old mistakes over and over and over again. And all of the mistakes go back to spiritual and moral failure somewhere. So uh, I am... Not impressed with myself, not at all. I'm not impressed with mankind as a whole. I love mankind. I have compassion for my fellow man. We're all trying to work our way through a very broken, a very fallen place in, in this uh, world. But apart from God, uh, I think we're completely at sea in terms of trying to, uh, to uh, 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 judge anything properly apart from God, much less to judge God or to judge his righteousness, or his judgments, or to take a position of thinking that I can offer God counsel on anything. There are verses that speak to this. One of them is Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 2. And Habakkuk wrote, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Now that feels right to me. That feels right to me. Nothing else feels right to me. That feels right to me. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 2. Do not be rash with your mouth, and do not let your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. That makes sense to me. That makes a lot of sense to me. Again, we remember how Job fared when he decided to challenge God and the wisdom uh, of, of God and the ways uh, of God. And, uh, and to challenge the ways of God and the wisdom of God is always the mark of a person who considers themselves to be smarter uh, and wiser than God. And Job kind of put himself in that place for a little while in the, in the middle of, of, of his trial. So you might remember that God invited him on the game show, so you think you're smarter than God. And then he posed, proceeded to pose 70 questions to Job that anyone ought to be able to answer if they consider themselves to be smarter than God, and Job went over 70. 
in, in that, that quiz. And so there he is, uh, utterly humiliated on national television, uh, and in fact worse, utterly humiliated on the pages of Scripture for our benefit. And, uh, and this is what he declared of the experience in Job chapter 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and he said, I know you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. Uh, You said, I will question you and you will answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Furthermore, I'm hesitant to judge the righteousness or the uh, necessity of God's judgment based upon the fact that uh, I don't think that any of us have the slightest inkling uh, of just how holy God is and how holy heaven is and how, how necessary the righteousness that Jesus alone can put to our account is required to one day enter into that glory and enter into that uh, holiness. And so I don't think we have the slightest understanding. I'm growing in it. We're growing in it. But we're just scratching the surface and we always will be in our understanding of how seriously not sin is viewed here on the earth, but how seriously it is viewed uh, in heaven. And not in some uh, artificial way, but righteously, rightly uh, viewed uh, seriously. I think about our dear brother, uh, the Apostle John, in this regard, the writer here of, of the Revelation. And you might remember that in his Gospels and in the other Gospels that were written, he's probably the youngest of the Twelve Apostles. And, uh, and, and uh, during uh, the three and a half years of Jesus' public ministry, he described the film familiarity of his relationship with Jesus. Uh, he described it himself and described himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved from the vantage point of earth. And yet in chapter 1 of this revelation, he is transported either by vision or physically into the glory of heaven, and he literally becomes the scarecrow in the Wizard of Oz. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, speaking of Jesus, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, 
and his voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, John declared, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. And we should notice all through chapters 6 through 19, describing the wrath and the judgment of God, and even in chapter 14's description of Gehenna, John, as he records all of this, he doesn't offer one peep of complaint. He doesn't make one statement from the vantage point of heaven, about the injustice uh, of, of any of it. We think about the Apostle Paul after seeing the glory of heaven himself. And then he would later write in this regard, in terms of the wisdom of God and the holiness of God, in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who can become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. I also think that it's a folly not only to pretend to be wiser than God in all of this, but to pretend to be more loving and more compassionate than God in a rejection of or the explaining away of uh, His judgment as it's described in the Scriptures. Because I think in order for a person to challenge uh, the love of God, not to just challenge His wisdom, but it's also a challenge of the love of God that would first require that such a person prove it. Prove they are more loving than God. And I'm not talking about having some kind of self-congratulating emotion uh, in my bosom, but by exceeding the magnitude of the demonstration of God's love for mankind in Jesus' death upon the cross for our sins. Not after we were saved and God cleaned us up a little bit, but while we were yet sinners and living in rebellion uh, to Him. There's an old saying about the Christian life that I think is very, very valuable here. And the saying goes like this, that when we're faced with what we don't know, we need to fall back on what we do know. And what we do know is what these tribulation saints who will have endured the worst the tribulation can dish out and then standing in the glory of heaven and in the glory of God's presence, they will declare, uh, they declare of God's ways, including uh, His judgment, he, they declare them to be great and marvelous, to be just and true, to be perfectly holy, and to be aimed at bringing all nations to come and worship Him, 
not only in the kingdom age, but forever and ever in eternity. And one day when we get into heaven as Christians, this is exactly how we will view God's judgment as well. And so I think it's very, very wise to make that our perspective today uh, as well. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, it's important for you to realize that no one goes to heaven based upon sins, plural. The only reason a person ends up in hell or in in judgment uh, is because of sin, singular. All of our sins can be completely forgiven in a moment by putting our trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of those sins. And, uh, and then all of the sin, multitude of sins are taken care of. And so the sin of rejecting God's offer uh, of salvation, that's the single sin for which there's no forgiveness. Rejecting God's offer of salvation and the forgiveness that is found in His Son. And, and when a, a, a person trusts in Jesus for salvation, all of the other sins are forgiven. Because Jesus has borne the wrath that my sin deserves, righteously uh, deserves. Uh, he bore that for us on the cross. And then now He is uniquely qualified to provide me with forgiveness. But if you reject God's offer of salvation, made at enormous expense to Himself, then the problem with that is that your sin's problem still remains. Your sins that have separated you from God, but then you now have added to them the greatest problem of all, sin singular, the sin of rejecting His Son. And you don't want to do that. And I don't want you to do that. And we don't want you to do that. And God doesn't want you to do that. God says that He's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. He has done everything He can, short of putting you in a headlock and forcing you into heaven. And then you would ruin heaven. And with that kind of an attitude... But he's done everything he can, and the, but he can't force you to take the gift. You have to take that for yourself. As we talked about here today, the stakes are enormously high related to what we do with Christ. Enormously high. It's not a game we're playing here. This is eternity. This is a game we're playing out there. This is not a game. And you want to be right with Him. And God wants you to be right with Him. He wants you to be a part of His family. He wants you to be in heaven with Him forever and ever. He is your maker. And now He wants to be your Savior. And we're going to be up in front immediately after the service. Some pastors, also men and women uh, as well. And we would love to answer your questions and pray with you. Uh, to have your sins forgiven by trusting in Jesus Christ this morning, if you've never done that. If you need prayer for any need in your life this morning, uh, they would love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together now.
and we'll close in prayer. Father, you see the world that we live in and how people are willing to deny every, every imaginable reality and saying and doing the hard thing in another person's life while they, the other person drives their car uh, off a cliff to a terrible terrible crash and burn and then to consider ourselves loving progressive to consider ourselves to be greater and smarter and wiser and more loving than you and it's all a folly and you see it for the folly that it is thank you for speaking the truth to us and thank you for not only speaking the truth to us of our need Lord our great need but also providing for that great need in our life. Thank you for telling us the truth about Jesus. Thank you for providing him to us for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you, Lord, for the world and the life that it's, uh, he saves us out of and the glory of the life that he saves us into, both now and forever. We say this morning, Lord, from our own experience, but based even more importantly upon your word, that righteous and true are your judgments. And we thank you for making a way for us to be on the right side of all of that. Thank you for the grace involved. Thank you for the love involved. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.